Yeah, I know. I know. I've seen the leaves turning. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. And uh, and you know what else is coming? This is a very special podcast today because it features an interview that I am so excited to reveal to all of you. If you listened to a history of Buffalo theater and you heard the parts about the Cavanoke Theater, you heard me talking to Mr. David Lamb. And he is extremely important to the history of Buffalo theater, but he's also extremely important in my own life because he unwittingly unleashed me upon the world when he called me at random because a student of mine recommended me, the student being Tracy Main, if he's listening. And Tracy recommended me for a show that I thought I was getting into to play a small character role. And it ended up being the lead in a musical, of all things. And from that moment on, I did several plays with David. And the rest is history, good or bad. But that was back in the 80s, and many things have happened since then. Including the fact that David Lamb is no longer the artistic director at the Cavanoke Theater. He has retired or been retired, depending on how you look at it. But with Cavanoke reopening now, and it's now rebranded as Duville Cavanoke Theater, which is only right, and with the Cavanoke now being reopened with a, a beautiful new remodeling job inside, a color scheme and new seats and new carpeting, it's gorgeous, I thought now was a good time to look back on how it all began and talk to the man who made it happen. And that was one of the reasons I thought it was so important to talk to him. The other reason being that I believe, and David sort of admits it, that the Cavanoke Theater was probably one of the main reasons why Buffalo developed its current theater community. It wasn't the sole reason, but it certainly helped when David Lamb proved that there was a market for small professional theater. So even though you heard from him before during the History of Buffalo Theater series, I thought it was important to hear his whole story. The man deserves it, his accomplishments should be honored, and this is how I'm going to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to our LTPs Off-Road, the founder of the Cavanoke Theater and the progenitor of so many others, Mr. David Lamb. I appreciate you doing this, and as I told you, I want to get the whole story, if we can, right from the beginning to the inauspicious end, where we will basically stop. <laughs> we'll do a lot of skimming and a lot of editing right. there. Yeah. But number one, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know that the Cavanoke was between you and ICTC, the two top theaters, and I don't think people know how it started, yeah. except for the few people when I, when you were telling the story one night. The night that we had, they had the little party for you over the the French restaurant uh, yeah. downtown. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. a little bit, a little bit at the anniversary party, mm-hmm. a little bit was told. But I, I'd like to go back even further to uh, you know all the way back to England if we can. Sure. Well, I'd be happy happy to do that. You know, and especially if you've got about. 12 hours today. <laughs> I, I, don't, um, I don't have 12 hours, there is, there but I'm in no big hurry. Yeah, there's no way of, of telling really what happened in Buffalo in 1966, which is when I came over here. Is that what it was, 66? Um, there's no way of, of telling, of starting there uh, without going back because everything happened by chance. You know, everything is connected. Mm-hmm. The three great influences in my life have, have been, apart from people, 
um, have been rugby, music, and theatre. Mm -hmm. And I got all of those from my school, which is a public school. I, I was sent away to school when I was seven because my dad died. So I could say because my dad died, I got sent away to a heck of an education, which was hell at the time. <laughs> and where was this? At King's Ely, and I got a choral scholarship to Ely Cathedral, believe it or not, because you've heard me sing now. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, I had a decent voice then, but uh, not since it broke. And I sang in the choir there for, until my voice broke, and I played rugby there. And we did, I would think, at least two plays every term, and three terms a year, so probably five or six plays a year. Mm -hmm. Up to what age was this? Like or from until 19. I, I stayed 19. there until I was 19, for, so from 7 until 19. Okay. Um, it was at that school. And it was, it's a medieval school. It's the oldest public school in England. 972, I think it was founded. Mm -hmm. And the traditions there, I mean, it was incredibly harsh. We were thrashed. And I got beaten my first day there to show me what was going to happen if I screwed up. Right. Um, first thing you do is establish discipline and right. show that you're not going to get, yeah. this little kid's not going to get and, away with anything. And, and as you went on, you got more and more and more responsibility. So by the time you were 18, no teacher was telling you what to do or what not to do. You were in charge oh. of the other boys, and the teachers were there to teach. They had nothing to do with discipline or anything else. So there was a lot of responsibility, and a lot of it was abused, thrashing younger kids and things like sure. that. And I, I used to protect uh, the kids that were bullied quite a lot there. And I, that and the teamwork that came out of both the choir and the rugby taught me an awful lot, I think, that when it came to directing over here and so forth, because in spite of the fact that you give instruction and so forth. I don't think anybody on the Cavs stage ever was not allowed to do what they did best. Mm -hmm. And I think when, when I was, I think, 13, uh, my voice broke. And uh, I was head choir boy then. And the festival of nine lessons and carols always begins with uh, Once in Royal David City. Mm -hmm. And the head choir boy sings the first verse on the introit processional. On the high note of Mary was that mother of mine, my voice decided... That was the moment? That was the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and whole f family was in the audience, you know, mm -hmm. very embarrassing. <laughs> but my friend Spud Brighton, who was actually a year older than me and his voice had not broken yet, heard my voice starting to go. And he came in seamlessly wow. on that moment and helped me through to the end of it. You, you couldn't have told, you couldn't have told, you yes. know, there was a chance. And we became, after that, best friends. Oh, how brilliant. That taught me something of helping somebody out, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. And I think actors do that all the time. Oh, they, they, you know, they just, somebody's going up, you know, you, you come in with a line, you help them out, or you, I've known actors try to screw somebody up too. No, I, I, I don't know anything <laughs> like that, anything about that. Yeah. But, but anyway, that, that, that whole public school thing, which was very, very tough, but it put a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, and uh, it made you incredibly independent because mm -hmm. parents were not allowed in. 
Every Friday, if kids got into uh, a fight or something, fights weren't allowed. But every Friday afternoon, they put the ring up and the gloves came out oh. and you go and settle your differences uh, under supervision. I think that that gave me the desire for independence. When I went to Trinity, life was very difficult. It was absolutely the golden years. Late 50s to the mid 60s, mm-hmm. just the golden years. And the talent was incredible. I'll show you Trinity Tales. There's an article there on players. Because I went to Trinity because of one of my teachers at King's was a TCD graduate, a Trinity College graduate, and uh, he was also a rugby coach. So he told me players were the place to be, which was their drama group, Mm because in those days you didn't take degrees in theatre. There was no such thing. Um, You could go to Rod or Lambda, um, the conservatories in London, or, but if, if you got into university, I think only one, one and a half percent of the population came out of school, went to university. I see. They very, very limited spaces. So when you came out of university, you'd get any job you wanted, basically, because they could train you. Yes. You know? um, Had you gotten a taste for theater in the, in the younger years? Yeah, so... So now you're, here you are at Trinity, and... Uh, so I went there for rugby. Yes. And for th- players, <laughs> theater. And the twain shall not mix. I mean, these were tribes, and they were two of the most powerful tribes in the, in the thing. And the fact that I played, I, I played rugby at a high level. I, I played for England under-19s. And I would never be able to play for them today. Yeah. But back in those days, we didn't have to train that much. <laughs> <laughs> and they were two completely different niches. I mean, there, there, there was the, totally. the rugby group and the players group. And yeah, that was completely and the players separated. group. And, and didn't have a lot of crossover people. A lot, not a lot of people doing both. No, this is why I, I was, you know, the rugby people laughed at acting, you yeah, know. Yeah. But the players, people were, were resentful of, of a jock in their midst. Oh. So it didn't bother me, you know. <laughs> you, just, you just get on with it. Right, but, right. But right. I got a lot of really good experience in players there because the competition, I didn't get lead roles for a long, long time. And they all went on to stellar theatre theater careers. Or BBC, Martin Lewis became the first... Uh, BBC announcer with an American salary, you know. Uh, wow. Yeah. It was also the place to be if you wanted to get into the theater? Absolutely. Absolutely. Really? Um, I, I'll show you an article uh, just listing, because I, I forget all the names. Yeah. Um, but all, all of the people that came out of there, Mike Bogdan, who became Mike Bogdanovich, who became the national director. They all went on to, to, to stellar careers. This, was it the same with the rugby team? Uh, Were they also a, a well, top for, for instance, uh, Ireland beat England last week. And there were three Trinity players wow. on the team, okay. uh, still playing for Trinity. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. that was top quality rugby. So now we're at Trinity College. So we're we're at Trinity, and I go through my four years there, and they're wonderful four years, just, just incredible. Yeah. I met everybody and got to act, got to play rugby, and so forth. So I graduate, 
and I decided to do summer stock in, in Dublin. Mm -hmm. And that summer stock at, at Trinity, it was in Players Theatre. We took oh, over the Players Theatre over for the, for the summer. So we did the caretaker, a guy called Chris Fitzsimon, who then beca became the director of the Abbey Theatre, hmm. came to see it. I was playing Mick, of course. and he offered me a job in Charlie's Aunt, which he was directing Des Keogh in. So that was my first equity job. Charlie's Aunt was in the Cork Opera yeah, House and then came back to Dublin. Gig. First union um, gig. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I lucked out there like crazy. So part of my job there was stand at a little table under Frontgate Trinity and sell tickets during the day, you know, sure. <laughs> so, because we were living on the proceeds. Right. I was literally sleeping on the bed on stage <laughs> because I'd been thrown out of my room. So there's no longer a... Oh, yeah, there's no longer a dormitory sort right. of situation. Yes. So so as I was standing under Front Gate Trinity, this little gal comes towards me and asks about the play and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we, we start chatting and so forth, and she's attractive, and a friend tells me she's Polish. And I said, you know, I happen to have a friend, Gregor, who, who is Polish, uh, which I did. Mm -hmm. I said, if you're in the old stand tonight, any time after seven or eight, uh, <laughs> I'll get Gregor to come along. And then I thought better of it, and so I didn't tell anything. I didn't tell Greg didn't about it. didn't tell Greg about it, no. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, so I just showed up myself. Who needs the competition? Marsha and I met. And, and she was from Duval, or the girl she was with was Mar from? Marsha was from Damon. She was on St. Patrick's Scholarship. Ah. Uh, as a Pol good Polish girl, she won the St. Patrick's Scholarship to study in Ireland. And part of the study was at the Sligo, uh, in Sligo, the Yates School, which was taught in, uh, in, in the early days by my tutor, Brendan Connelly. Mm -hmm. And this is when I knew that we're, we're going to hit it off. She went to Sligo, and I'm staying in, in Dublin, and the, our show closed, and that w a weekend came up, and I thought, I'll just drive up. I had a Jag XK140 at the time, and put it on the road, <laughs> barreling up to Sligo. And that'll and, impress her, too. Uh, and uh, Yeah, right. And I, I got to the house that she was staying at, and I knocked on the door, and I asked her, I said, Marsha Prorock, you know. And she said, no, she went to see a boyfriend down in Dublin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. So, this is a four-hour trip, you know. Oh, my. And so I just turned around, so I said, can I use your telephone? And I called the old stand, which was our local pub, and where I told Marsha to meet Gregor, and talked to Morris, who was the bartender. You see, I remember these names. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> right. And I said, Morris, if a girl comes in there, she looks like this, tell her that when you close, because I won't get back before closing time, I tell her to go to the Trocadero across the road, which is the restaurant, and wait for me there. So I get back to Dublin. I don't know if she's going to be there or not. I, I go in the truck, and there's Marcia sitting there. I said, "I guess this is this is good." So, so Marcia, she's she's a local. She's from Buffalo. She's, she's from, from Amherst, maybe. She was from Chicktawaga. So we we met and we spent some time there. And then she had to go to Europe. It was part of the tour, mm -hmm. or part of the course that they were on. And came back. I saw her again, and I said. Well, 
she flew off to back to America. I said, you know, uh, maybe I'll come over and see you. you know, and, uh, sure. What was she studying at Damon? English. English. Yeah, she was uh, student body president and... You said, you you know, maybe I'll come over and see you. Sometime. Yeah, I said, maybe I'll come over and see you. So I did. So I came over. I didn't wait for very long. And I came uh, on the old Queen Mary. Um, yes. The, the car was free, and they just drive in and bring all of your stuff. No kidding. Yeah. I didn't know that. It's, it was, I think, 34 pounds at the time. Wow. <laughs> Including the car. Including the car. So we came over seven days later. I arrived in New York and drove up the next day to Buffalo. And the only directions Marsha had given me were Walden Avenue. She says, just get off at Walden. So not knowing about clover leaves or anything like that, you know, I get the first Walden exit. And oh, you're yeah, heading yeah. yeah. into the city. <laughs> in the city. I think, yeah. this is wrong. <laughs> so I asked somebody where Union was. Pick her up and go back to a folks' home. And uh, her sister greets us at the door and she shouts back, hey, look what Marsha brought home. <laughs> <laughs> this is my casual, you know, introduction to America, basically. I had no job or anything, you know, and I got a job teaching at DeVoe through Manpower. Oh, uh, yeah. DeVoe in Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. I've heard of it, sure. So they gave me room and board and uh, $5,000 a year. Um, and I said, great, great. Fine. But I'm leaving at the end of the year, basically. <laughs> yeah. So Marsha has an interview at Amherst for a teaching job okay. because she had interned there yes. as a practice teaching. Yes, yeah, student with, teacher. With Peg Larkin. Okay, the Larkin warehouse. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Dan was an English teacher at Orchard Park and Peg was at Amherst. I see. And she knew I was looking for it. She said, well, I can get a job at Orchard Park. Why don't you take my interview with Don Munson? Don Munson is his name. Mm -hmm. At Amherst. Huh. I said, great. So I show, I show up with Marsha, with Don, and she said, I'm not taking the interview, but uh, David <laughs> this is, guy is. This, this guy is. is Don said, all right, all right. Uh, I, <laughs> so I sat down, and his first question, he said, do you play sports? So I told him about the rugby. And I said, you know, I, I played for, for, for England under 19. He said, you had the job. I said, right, and, and can you teach uh, the football team kicking? You know, I said, hey, absolutely. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in those days, you could get jobs. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and, and just like that, because you, like could teach, you could teach them kicking. Right. <laughs> Uh, and he, yeah, he was a runner, and uh, you know, he just liked and, athletes. You know, and, and athletes like that, he knows that guys who played on teams, right. the things that you learn about leadership yep. and everything else, he, he, he knew, he knew right. what he was. So I go to Amherst, and I meet uh, Mort Clayman, who taught the musical. You know, he, mm -hmm. he did the musical mm -hmm. every year, directed it. And... I, I said I was an actor, and I probably wouldn't be around for too long. But he said, all oh, the Amherst players, you know. Oh. And I said, well, you got to keep your wick wet, you know. I said, so I said, okay. So we did a play called Miss Pell is Missing that he was in and I was in at the Amherst players. And I met a few people, you know, in the theater community. So 
go back to school and I said, you only do mu musicals here? He said, yeah, you know, one a year and spring, spring musical. Mm -hmm. I said, well, uh, you know, we're going to do more than that. So, <laughs> so I, I, try, I, I got a club together, basically, yes. to do legit theatre. Then my friend John Slattery was in charge of the, the English curriculum. You know, so I said, John, you, you've got to put the theatre into the curriculum. He said, yeah, uh, we can do that. Uh, so I got two classes in theatre oh. added. You know, I had to teach it from a literary point of view. That's but, what I was just going to ask. But, it was right, but, but you could. We, but we did plays afterwards, and this is what Scott Barron benefited from. Oh, uh, because he was an Amherst lad, and he was part of the theatre program. Yes, he was. There. So tell him to say thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, no, he should be. He should be thanking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A year later, in 1968. We get married, hmm. right? And did she get the job at Orchard Park? Oh yes, oh, she did. Yes, yes. okay, um, perfect. And we were doing great. And I could have stayed being a high school teacher f for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I was always looking for theatre work, you know. And I'd gone down to studio, and I'd got two parts down there. Mm -hmm. I thought, this is great, you know, I can make my money here and I can still act and so forth. Yes. Uh, and the only other person in Buffalo who was being hired then was Jeannie Karen or Jeannie Hebben as she yes. was then. Yes. She was in the group that formed just before Studio Arena became Studio Arena. Neil DeBrock got uh, a Ford Foundation grant, I think for $50,000, and formed Studio Arena right. as such. He was the one who turned it into an equity house right. from being uh, more of a, the Buffalo players in yeah. the community. This is stuff that right. I discovered in yeah. my research. So he moved from Lafayette and Hoyt yes. up to Main Street mm -hmm. uh, and so forth. And Jeannie was part of the, that company. And... Oh, there's one part of the story that we're building up to that I forgot to mention. When I was in Trinity, we were doing a production of Murat Saad, and I was playing Dupere, and we took it to the Irish University's Drama Festival in Galway. So after the show one night, this guy comes up to me, and, you know, Irishman, and he was from UCD, and he said, fantastic, you know, oh, great. Why you can't be, be, you know? So he, he goes on and on, and he was obviously drunk out of his mind, and he had nowhere <laughs> to stay that night. And he sort of collaborated. He said, you can sleep on our hotel room floor, you know. And he did. And uh, next morning we had breakfast, and he went his way. And he was he was going to go into television, uh, right? <laughs> so that all happened. And I'll leave the rest of the story until until it comes to, around. Okay. Yeah. So, little teaser. Yeah. So, 68, we got married, and I knew I was in trouble because I was 1A oh. on the draft. And sure, and so right after we were married in August, Marcia said, have to write to the draft board, tell them we're going to England, which we had planned on doing because my mother had just sold the business and, uh, you know, she's a widow. She needs some help. And I was going to show the new bride because nobody had come over here. They were too busy sure. you know, working. So 
Marsha says, you have to write to the draft board. So I wrote this letter to the draft board, put it in the mail saying, you know, uh, sorry about the 1A thing, but we'll be in England for the next year. You know, <laughs> sorry. Gonna... Sorry about the 1A thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, just as I'd sent that off, I get a letter, greetings from the president. Oh, no. <laughs> so I got my lawyer, Tom Whistle, and he knew a general in Albany, and said, these letters crossed in the mail. Just, I, said, yes. I let them know we were leaving. And, he's, and the, the general said, just tell them to get out of the country. It's fine. And I'd only been here, what, just over a year. And uh, so, anyway, off we go back to England. So where was it, this, then? King's Lynn. Oh, that's the name of the town? Yeah, yes. Sorry for my ignorance, yeah. but I don't... It was an old port town on, on the East Coast. Um, so... So was your intention to stay there for a good long time, or our intention was no, we didn't know. Yeah, uh, we honestly didn't know. And at the end of the year, I said, you know, let, let's try to go back to the states. So I'll try for my third green card. Yes. In order to work, you had to have a green card. Right. And then I'd immigrated, and now I was going to try the third time. I see. It took like two weeks to get another green card. Hmm. So easy in those days. Yeah. To cut a long story short, we got on the boat with or, with an old 1936 MGTC. Uh, again with the free car. The car again, travels again for free. With the free car. <laughs> Three cartons of Wedgwood china. Oh, china, that, that, china. That my mother had given us for a wedding present. Oh. All suitcases, other bags and all that sort of thing. And we get to, we're going to pick up the Wedgwood china on the way down to the boat in London. And the car gets a flat tire right in front of, of Harrods. Uh, and it's rush hour. Oh, and dear. So we pull on the middle of the road. I get the jack out because it's just behind my seat, seat and I could get to it. Uh, and I put the jack in it and I can't get it underneath because the car is it's so heavy. It's already loaded down. <laughs> Bugger. Well, two cops come along and they said, you, you, you've got to get the car out of here. You know, it's rush hour. I, I, I can't get the jack under the change the wheel. He's a big, tall Scotsman, tiny little Welshman. <laughs> one gets on one side of the car. And they lifted. <laughs> they just lifted up, changed the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> and go in and pick up the, uh, the China, and we're on, on our way down to the boat. Wow. And that would never happen nowadays. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> but so we were lucky. Yeah. So we get on the boat, and suddenly up the gangplank comes marching this guy with a bloody great Afghan hound there. And... A gal who it turns out is his wife, mm -hmm. and his name was Ron Brando, B-R-A-N-D-O-W, and Liz was his wife. So, and under his arm, he's got all these newspapers. He throws them down, you know, very dramatically, and they think long flowing hair and a cape and Thank goodness. You know, this is the 60s you know you expect anything. So he throws these papers out and the pictures are of him and Liz. Right, and they just got married in London, and of course he'd made a big show of it, getting all newspaper coverage and all this sort of thing, you know, big extravagant society wedding and all that sort of thing. So, anyway, we get talking, and uh, he says he's a director, and I said, "Oh, that's great! I'm an actor." <laughs> <laughs> so, so we decide that um, we should go to work, and. 
the show on the boat was not the best. Mm -hmm. um, so I started writing, in those days I used to write a bit, uh, but reviews, yes. review sketches. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote up a few sketches and we put this show together. And I remember Marsha played, who, who's that uh, ventriloquist dummy? Oh, uh, Charlie McCarthy. Charlie McCarthy. She played. On my, so we do it all sexual. <laughs> this is the sixties. She's on my lap. You know, we do it all doing sex. I've heard mouth. That must have been hilarious. And they, they loved it. Of course, I mean, they, they they loved it. And so we did the whole the show the whole way over. So when we docked, two things happened. Marsha went first. And I, it was then that I found out that a visa, a green card visa, was permission to attempt entry to the country, not permission to enter. Oh. It's up to the border people. Hmm. So she went first at about 5.30 in the morning because uh, we landed early in the mo morning and American citizens went first. And things are a bit dicey because, as it turned out, uh, a lot of the people on board who were drift dodgers. They, drift they, dodgers. They, they, they turned back. Hmm. Marsha came back and said, "This guy's from Buffalo. He, you know, he, he's a, he, and he's nice. You know, go in this line, mm -hmm. go get him." So I did. And he goes through the staff and uh, he says, "Oh, great!" And he opens up the envelope, which I'd not been allowed to open. Uh, it was a big brown envelope with all the paperwork in it. And he goes through it and he says, "Oh, it all seems in order and stuff." And he gives me my passport back and. Uh, these are green card stuff. Said, right. He said, just a minute. Let me look at the passport again. He said, you've emigrated twice before. I said, yeah, the first time I was on a holiday, I mm -hmm. just came over as a student. I needed to work. And, and last year, my uh, mother sold business and had just got married. So we went, he just looked at me. He said, 68 was a lousy year for us. Good luck. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that something? Happenstance again, you know. I, and I, 68 was a loss. I, I, <laughs> oh, God, I just, awful year. my whole body just melted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because you don't know if he's going to say, uh, you know, what's your story? Back, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he didn't believe me, but it was, part, it was mostly the truth. Sure. But, so uh, we came back, and then happened. And I told Ron, uh, Ron Brando, I said, "If you're ever in Buffalo, look us up, you know, and, and so forth." Never expecting to see him again. Um, he went off into New York, and I assumed he was going to stay there and try to get theater work. Turns out he goes to Chicago, where they have a. a Convention of people who uh, for, for people who are looking for work in in, in colleges, mm -hmm. and I get this phone call from him. He said, "Have you ever heard of a place called Duval Colleges?" And, and not really. No, I one of the gals who was with Marsh. I don't know anything about it. He said, "Well, I just got a job there," um, and he'd been hired by a guy called Jerry Marconi, who was the department chair. Um, he was the only one there at the time, and then Ron came. <laughs> yeah. Well, because the other guys had left, that's why they had a job opening. And uh, was it, it was a job opening in the English department? No, 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 in the theater. In theater, okay. They had a theater department. So they had time. a theater department at yeah. Duval at the time. Right. Okay. All right. So I said, 
well, stay with us until you get a house and mm -hmm. uh, welcome to Buffalo sort of thing. So they, Now, had you come back to work in Buffalo? I mean, uh, to your uh, Amherst job? Yes. You had, okay. And uh, they kept it open there again. <laughs> I don't know if it's Things back, were they, different, yeah. They, they kept it open. Yeah, well, they um, kept it open because they wanted you to come back. That's so, why they kept it open. Uh, yeah, I made some good friends, good contacts there. It, it, it was good. So I go back to Amherst, and he's done a deal. He's, you know... Come down, you know, do a show, and I said, "You can't afford me." You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do any amateur theatre because it's too time-consuming. I've got to, I've got to get paid for my, for work because I'd be looking all the time. I sure. So, and I had already been given parts by Neil de Brock, so I go back to Neil, and he said, "Yeah, I can, I can use you." Um, yeah. So he said, "Look, I'm in charge." I can get, we, we get the we get some money. I said, okay, so I go down to Deauville, and he is doing this production of Everyman. He said, "I want you to play Everyman, but you have to learn your lines." I said, well, of course. He said, "No, everybody else is going. The parts are going to be danced, and somebody else, other than the dancer, is going to be doing their voices through." you know, loudspeakers uh, and, and so forth. So we get this multimedia show. Then he huh. went out and he took about 2,000 uh, photographs of various parts of what he thought was every man and projected them up onto the dome. And we obviously we're not doing it in the Kavanaugh or, or the Duval thing. In the auditorium. We're doing it at First Presbyterian on Symphony Circle there. Oh, okay. Big dome. It's a, gorgeous, yeah. Up there. So it's it's this '60s version with slides, dancing, and Zella Cable um, choreographed, and her daughter Zella Junior played Good Deeds. And she was fabulous. Were you doing it under the under the the Duville label? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this was a Duville College production production of their theater department. And I, it ends with after every man is sacrificed mm -hmm. as Christ, right naked up there dance belt, some guy comes with big knife and cuts the dance belt off, so uh, my only naked show in Buffalo. Oh, <laughs> Dade low light. Don't have pictures of that, I'll bet. <laughs> the, the nuns didn't mind. Didn't mind. Well, it was every back, man. Yeah. Back then, yeah. it was every man. And skeleton painted in day glow stuff, you know, wow. all over you. And then put his, his body into a plexiglass coffin as the Black Sabbath is playing, oh, <laughs> taking down the aisle with this green light in the coffin. That's sort of thing. It was, this was a multimedia psychedelic of uh, the late 60s. This, 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 this is what we did. Yeah. This is what we did. And, uh, I, I mean, Ron wasn't a great director, but he was a hell of a showman. Mm. Uh, and, then, and then he did a production of uh, The Importance of Being Honest, and that's when Duval stage... The thrust was built and painted black and white squares. So and that was done on the Duville stage, on the auditorium that, stage. On the auditorium stage. So that's how I got down there. And you were still teaching at Amherst at the time? Yes. But doing whatever theater right. gig you could the, find? The idea for the Kavanoki, well, the idea was, was mine, but for the building restoration was not my idea. Jerry Marconi, the chair of the department, he was a designer. He was not an actor or a literary guy or anything, but he was a heck of a designer. Yes. 
and he had all of these drawings of what he could do with the theatre if he got the money to restore it because mm -hmm. it was a mess. There were, you know, loose chairs all over the place with no regular seats except up in the balcony. Mm. The whole thing needed redoing. But at the end of that year, they closed the theatre department down. So Jerry got fired, Ron got fired. Any idea why they decided to go, to uh, yeah, get rid of the theater department? Because they wanted to concentrate on nursing, which is where the money was. I see. And I was they were right about that. And that final year, that by the way, I'd moved from Amherst and I was teaching English there. Uh, oh, at Duval, okay. Uh, at there. And so I stayed on a couple more years, and then they fired me because they were losing money, they could just cut the problems. And I went to, uh, oh, and before that, Jerry had showed me these drawings, and mm -hmm. I kept the drawings. I you see. Know, that has got to be what we do. You know, we have to restore. Well, then everybody got fired, and it was all gone. So the idea came to nothing. I went to Canisius, and I tried to start a theater there. Um, at the college? At the college. And they hired me, Ed Zimmerman hired me right away, and there were like 24 English teachers then. We would all meet up on Friday evening up at the Waverley Hotel across mm, the border, mm. you know, and everybody gets soused. <laughs> <laughs> all except Charlie Brady, who was the old man of the department, and of course... Oh, Charlie met. Brady. So it was Duval's intention, after they cut the theater department and right. they, they fired you, that the auditorium was just going to be lay barren? It was just exactly. going to... Exactly. Okay. But at the end of that year, Canisius, they bought my idea of theater, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so forth. So I said, well, I, c I can do this. I said, we're not going to hire you, because I had no reputation mm -hmm. by then. We're not going to hire you. We have to get uh, a PhD in communications. <clears throat> because communications was what it was all about in the early 70s. And I said, for what? I said, this is theater. You know? <laughs> so who did they hire from California? David Fendrick. <gasps> David Fendrick. Wow. So he got the job that I'd set up for him. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you sold him on the idea I, of theater, said, and David came I, in. I wanted to think so. I was really really annoyed. And Ed Zimmerman, he was going to quit, you know, the, 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 he said, I want David to stay in the yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because he'd done a we'd done a production of Under Milkwood, and I put Ed into it, uh, and two other English teachers there as well. And that's where I'd met Greg Mayday, who had just graduated. We had to build our own light system, I know that. Mm. And I made all of these lights out of coffee cans, right. different sizes, you know, <laughs> right. things, so that we could, and, and um, uh, Tim Daly, who Tim you Daly. remember, uh, I met him at Canisius, yep. uh, he was a student, and Hannon and Scudder and Nowak. Yes. Um, and they all teched the show. And Tim built a dimmer board with household dimmers. Dimmers, with, sure. With um, a board that you could slide across so you'd get them all to work together. <laughs> so you could do a blackout. Well, you pull it down. Well, I got these lights going up and down on individual voices and things like yes. that. Anyway, so that was our production at Canisius. And I met Greg, and that summer we decided we needed a theater. 
So we were going to do summer stock. So we got the Keenan Center. Yes. And uh, on that little stage, that little yeah. posted stamp right. size stage, uh, the Keenan Center. Heartbreak House, and, and about four shows. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I'd known uh, Roz Kramer because I had done Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Now, did, did, at this point, had you done before this, because I know your name is on Samazi's list for, with Melick and Mime, right. uh, and then there was the Milky Way Theater yeah. that's now the original the Pancake Knack. House. I did the Knack at the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. And with yeah. who, who was that with? Was that, did, did they have their own theater company there? I've, the, got, I've got the posters. Uh, well, it's not, it's, not, it's not, it's not. Jerry Marshall. Marchette. Uh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, he directed, I think. And then with Greg, we went out to the Kenyon Center and Rose, and we were good, good, good friends. And she just started toy. Yes. Um, but they had no money, and they were out there. So I tell you what, whatever we make out of the Kenyon Center, it goes to you. And I talked to Greg about it. He said, Yeah, that, that's fine. We, you know, as long as we've got enough to live on. Sure. Uh, fine. I said, I've got enough money. So anyway, we did the summer stock, and we gave the money, and that kept toy wow. in, in business, mm -hmm. basically. At the end of that summer, I get a telephone call. I remember we had a little kitchen there. It was in the corner there, and I get a call from Sister R. Patricia Smith saying, I've been trying to get hold of you all summer. I said, no, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right here. Yeah, right. Uh, she said, well, we have an opening in the English department, and I have to offer it to you. And this is a woman who always used to be really supportive of what Ron and I were doing down in the theater. Mm -hmm. A smart woman, and she was academic dean now, and... She said, I have to offer it to you. I said, why do you have to offer it to me? She said, well, you were the last Last person. one fired. I, 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 do you want it? I said, no, uh, I, I don't think so. Um, because if I come back there, it is with one intention only, and right. that's to uh, start a theater company. And it, that means restoring the theater. She said, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I, I said, well, in that case, I'm not interested in your job. But are you sure? I'll come back as long as you give me leeway to try to get the money to restore the theater. Hmm. Do what you like. Basically. You get the money, you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I went back there to teach English until the theater happened. Well, it took, what, six years, seven years of browbeating and finally uh, Ed Cavanoki who was the chair of the board he was also a Broadway angel well they call him an angel but he's there to make money but that's, you know the he led the campaign and but they got the money and they restored the theater and he was on the Duville board at the time. Yeah, president of the board, first lay president of the board, I think. Mm -hmm. So now that the theater is getting, uh, now that the auditorium right. is getting refurbished. Yeah. Okay. Now you've got to do something with it. Right. Well, now it's getting it, it's it's getting refurbished, and they didn't at first put me on the committee to work with the architects. <laughs> <laughs> But then they started calling me on the telephone and asking me questions. 
I was the only one who knew what should go into well, this. Did you say that I have these plans? Here, yeah. here, I have the plans from What's-His-Name. Well, it was how it was going to be used, because it wasn't Mary Charlotte Barton, who was just retired at the end of the 70s, and Denise had taken over, and she was a good friend at that time. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, we opened the theater, but it has to be a professional company. And this is where the idea for the Kamenoki came in, which was all mine. As I say, the restoration part of it wasn't, but it was Jerry uh, McConey's. But Sister I, Denise was what at this point? She had just she taken just, over? She'd be just become president. But she was before that? Do you know? Uh, Mary Charlotte Martin was the president before her. No, no. What, what was Sister Denise before? Teaching. Just uh, a teaching at the, at mm -hmm. the school? Okay. Yep. The idea for the Kavanoki was that Studio Arena were hiring out of town. Yes. And local actors, other than myself, were not getting cast. Right. And I think I was uh, being cast because of my accent. Hmm. You know, yeah. um, so I met a lot of people while I was doing shows there, and specifically in the backstage area, as well as some actors. Yeah. I said, if we put together a company of local people, now that doesn't mean I'm going to hire the company all locally, mm -hmm. because I know all these people from Studio Arena get them to stay in town, you know, and they come to the studio to do a show, maybe they'll stay for another six months or mm -hmm. four months or to do a show. So we have to pay them. Now, who are you trying to convince of this, the, the, the Sister Denise? Yeah. Ultimately, the school had to know that this was not going to be a student-oriented operation. Right that it was going to make money, or at least be self-sustaining. Self-sustaining, yeah. sure. Putting on the plays in the college dining room at, at the time, which is the only space we had, I, th I think potential backers or faculty especially, people involved on the Duval campus at the time, saw what they could expect uh, with a restored theater and were sufficiently impressed by, you know, what they saw that they got behind the theater and gave money to the restoration process. And we used people that I had met at Canisius there, Joe Shooter, Jim Hannon, Ken Nowak backstage with Tim Daly stage managing, and Garman, Pat Garman. But what was she, she? She was very supportive in the early days. She and another gal whose name I forget, they were both older students. I had them both in class. Mm. Uh, and they what, were all there from the beginning of the State Center they were, experiment? Yeah. yeah, they were slinging cables through the roof <laughs> tiles and uh, building a stage uh, in the dining room there. Um, so they were instrumental in, in State Center being successful, which in turn led to a, a confidence factor in those who wanted to uh, donate toward the restoration of the of right. the auditorium. Yeah, yeah, and we did we did believe it or not a lot of musicals there as well uh, as straight plays, and we we did a, a good mix of the type of thing that we were going to do. Obviously, we could do it better with the Kavanaugh at the Kavanaugh mm -hmm. stage, mm -hmm. but. Uh, yeah, using students uh, helping backstage. Robin Backer was a student, a nursing student, who was a stage manager for years after she graduated, before Katie Bassett came along. Mm. Um, 
you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to start without those those people, you know, my wife and Mel Palmer doing box office and stuff like that. It was all the volunteers, the actors you knew were going to come along because they were paid. Right. Uh, believe it or not, we actually started paying people, and I think in 1974, mm -hmm. one of the actors came along and says, well... I need to get paid to do this. Where else are you getting paid? He wasn't getting paid anywhere. No, no, no. You know, I think it was probably Richard West. Probably, <laughs> probably. So, uh, somebody like that <laughs> who was part of that group uh, just came out of UB. They, they were good dads, you know, but uh, the enthusiasm, as I say, it really came from all the volunteers mm. that were so, so supportive uh, in getting us going. And, and it was such a new concept, really, because whoever thought... You know, as we said before, there was Studio Arena. That was it. And whoever thought of the concept of having another paying professional theater right. and at a college yep. of all places, right. you you had to establish yourself to give them a sense of confidence that yeah. this was going to fly. So I, I was only, but I was really, you know, I didn't give a shit about managing. That's why you got people like Tom Martin in there mm -hmm. or, or Steve, or Steve uh, and so taking over mm -hmm. um, because, you know. Right, because the, you didn't have any interest in that I had, part of I had, it. I, you were on the artistic side I, of it. I yeah. only was interested in what went on between the process and that sort of thing. I said, that, that was my goal from the age of three onwards. That and I was going to play for England rugby. Yeah. Those two things were the only things I cared about, you know. Um, yeah. And I wanted a 501c3 uh, right away because of raising funds. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly was put on the New York State Council of the Arts as a local representative. And what I learned there, you know, of how you get money and all of this sort of thing, you know, it would have been much easier with an independent 501c3. But they wouldn't go along. They had to retain control. Mm. So, I go along with that mistake, but I went along with it. I said, but it has to be, you know, fully operational theater, paying people and run independently of the student academic program. I said, now we can use students, you know, backstage and all this sort of thing, mm -hmm. but their chances of getting a part are slim to none, you know. So for, right from the very beginning, see, in my mind, I thought, because of the first show that I did with you. And I became introduced to you through a student of mine right. who was attending Duval. Uh -huh. uh, I, from the beginning, I assumed that you your intention was to, that you had played this that, yeah, we'll use students, sure, sure, sure. But you intended it for be professional, but you... I had told them. You sort of conned, not conned them, but you sort of convinced them that students would be involved. You're partially right. Yeah. You're, you're partially right. Yes, I had told them that, and we did try. The problem of doing it was time. You know, we work six days a week. Mm -hmm. Are you available? Yes. Uh, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we got work to do. But you were still teaching there as well, right? No. That became. I, I did actually have a theater production class. Okay. Which I didn't have to teach, but I said I wanted to just to keep that connection there. Right. But the operation had to be financially separate, yeah. you know, so that we could control, you know, what we were doing with the shows and all that sort of thing. And that certainly became a full-time 
Right. Uh, I mean, that job is huge. Absolutely. So you, yeah. th you're no longer teaching English. You've got to play production class right. that just sort of on right. the side. And so... Sister Denise... Uh, and, and it worked. We got some really good people in there. Yeah. Yourself included. And, and you brought in Joe Shooter and, and Jim Hannon. And those guys came, came in, in from Canisius. From Canisius, our connection. They started us off. Yes. You know, and I think the, uh, another kicker was, um, you know, I went to see a, a production of Waiting for Godot. The Airways, uh, Airways. The Airways Hotel the Airways. with uh, yeah. Vince, uh, Chris and Vincent. Yeah. yeah. So we get talking at, at the bar afterwards. It said, you know, good production. As a matter of fact, I disagreed with um, the aspects. And Chris and I, we used to slang each other for years afterwards <laughs> about it. And we're sitting there and being, he says, I know you. <laughs> he was the guy who slept on our uh, hotel room floor in Galway oh. all those years ago. <laughs> Now that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. So you brought in people, because at this time, once Neil DeBrock took over at Studio Arena, it became an equity house, and he stopped hiring locally, mm -hmm. except for you and maybe one or two, maybe right. Jeannie a couple times. Some of your intention was to create another theater that local actors could perform in. Absolutely. And, and to use the resources of Studio Arena in ways that they were not being used at Studio Arena. For instance, Brett Thomas was a really good designer. Yes. Uh, he designed a lot of shows for us. He, he loved doing it, but he never got a chance to design the, the studio. studio. Right, right. He was the techie, mm -hmm. but he was a really good designer. Yes. And you brought in actors that you had met doing dinner theater and doing other sure. other theaters around the area. Sure. And, and as we just a said. And from studio. You know, uh, Bobby Spencer directed Bobby the Spencer. first. You know, the first Noises, noises Off. off. There you go. So that that was the uh, idea. Did you have a mission in mind besides that? In other words, in terms of what types of theater you wanted, what types yes. of shows you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, the Kavanoki began as stage center, but we had to give that name up when Saul took over the Pfeiffer, oh, it was the called the Center Theatre. Mm -hmm. So that's how we started off in and 1973. And that's when you did shows at, at, uh, across the street at Across the, the street in the dining room. I, I saw that's a, all the, the same La Mancha people, there. Right, all the same people were there. Mm -hmm. Richard Wesp, uh, Tom and Tim Joyce, uh, the Joyce brothers. Yes. Uh, they were all part of it. A lot of people from UB graduated and came and... and we started the company basically then. I see. You started it at the... It was... In the dining room. In the dining room. Yeah. Right, right of, yeah. The, of the student yeah. center. Yeah. While, we did, they, while they were remodeling the, the, yeah. the building? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we did quite a few musicals there. You yeah. Know, right. I have nothing against musicals. It's just that wasn't the mission. Yes. You know, that, that, that was to establish people and, and to get some cash. And, because in those days, the bank account was mine. Mm. You know, I, mm -hmm. I had a special savings account that kept separate from my own money, but uh, we were making money even then. Yes. Because we weren't spending much. Right. So, yes, the, uh, the idea was to have a local company uh, because when we were doing Charlie's Aunt, there was an old guy called Teddy Byrne who played Spedigue, and he was an older actor, obviously, and he was single and he was 60 years old and he was traveling around the country 
doing bits of shows. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't want that to be my life. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be an actor, but I don't want to spend it on the road picking up parts and having everyone, one job goes, I don't have a next one. And I'd spoken to, well, I won't drop names, a very famous director in, in England one day. And I said, how did you start off? He said, you have to produce, you have to produce. And then if you fail in the part, you get another chance. <laughs> so, okay. I, so I thought, you know, when I saw the cabinet, this is my chance to produce and to be in charge of my future. Mm -hmm. I don't want to travel around. And so then I th started to think of the actors. They probably feel the same as me. They don't want to go to New York and audition and hope they get a job in Cleveland and all that sort of thing. They, you know, much better if they are fully committed to the theater can stay in town. So we formed this local company. And I think we had one. Yes. You know, and I, it was small. It was only about, you know, less than a dozen people permanently. And then other people came in. But we had good people. And Annie obviously was, and the O'Neill's, well, Chris was, but not so much Vincent. He did a couple of shows, but... Uh, well, he had gone back to Ireland and then uh, yeah, came back. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and I, I think we built we built up... Well, you're part of it. You, you know, we built up pretty good people, I think, that, uh, I mean, you were, in, certainly in the later years, uh, my go-to guy, um, because I was doing more and more directing, and, uh, you know, we get Peter, so... I think we had we had some really good people. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's no question about and that. And we were making quite a bit of money. Um, it all went to the dogs when so many theatres started. And I have nothing against the other theatres. Don't get me wrong. It's just the numbers don't add up. Mm -hmm. And so we had this vibrant curtain up party, which Kavanoke started with, uh, what's his name? He, he didn't have any money, and so I said, just take the set from here. And he, he, he built sort of basically a, a, a grandstand in the middle of the street mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the first curtain up, uh, Michael Petek. Mm -hmm. And that started that off, and all of these theatres grew up you know, uh, around it, but they were all competing for the same The people. same dollar, yeah. 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 So people who were most helpful to you in getting, you, you mentioned Barlow uh, originally as, as being, but the people who were most helpful to getting the Kavanoke, or or what would we call it, the, 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 the center uh, stage, whatever, stage, uh, center. stage yeah. center, yeah. people who were most helpful to you at that point, I think they were friends from the faculty, okay. and of course the actors. You know, I mean, who, who wanted to work, sure. But their own future was involved. But it was the people who gave the money to the restoration, and they were friends. I mean, the Abanos, you know, oh, it's yes. super, super helpful. Yes. Uh, and then Jan did all of our posters. Yeah, they beautiful, so many those beautiful posters. Jan Ag Agati Abano. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were really helpful, and the Kavanoke, uh, the, the Ed Kavanoke. Ed Kavanoke. Yeah. I didn't see much of him at all. Mm -hmm. You know, he he was very much laid back. I think the Wizbaums were very very helpful in the early stage. What uh, were the biggest obstacles? Yeah, let me ask you that. The biggest obstacles were people not understanding theater, 
and what it involved. Is the administration of, of the college, we, we had a, a CEO who, uh, when I asked for a communication system for the, to the booth, from the booth mm -hmm. to the stage, asked me, why can't you flash uh, a flashlight, you know, from the <laughs> stage up to the booth? This sort of ignorance, you know, uh, people who were against theatre, basically, uh, and they were establishmentarians, you mm -hmm. know. The, I think those were the biggest obstacles. People who only see the show <coughs> have no idea. Right. You know, it's, it's that old thing of the iceberg. You can't see what's beneath then, the surface. And then you get people like Marsha and Marianiani and all the people who are helping backstage, you know. Mm -hmm. These um, are the helpful. Yeah. And, and they just love what you're doing yep. and like to be around it. By the way, did they eventually use the, the designs from... Not exactly, mm -hmm. not exactly. But what the designs had set out to do, the ideas, they, they certainly used. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, I, I translated it into what the new architects decided. But they didn't pay any attention to half of what I said. Uh, the, the one thing they didn't do was rip out the front row of the seats in the balcony, which they should have done, uh, and move it back. Because it's too tight. Oh, it's very tight. It's very tight. I don't think. Um, but they refused to do that. And they said, we're spending enough money as this. You know, I said, well, it's your fault you're spending the money. because." But um, anyway, you know, we can, we can laugh about it now. At the time, it was a lot of it was really frustrating. Oh, I'm sure. Um, and getting people who didn't really know what the end product was going to be doing. Or what it entailed to, yeah. to get to that. Yeah. For, for instance, I, I called Dave Zirk and, uh, for the lighting. Mm -hmm. And I said, Dave, can you come in and give us an estimate for a grid, you know? And he came in. He said, yeah, you have to have a grid up here, you know, and over the, the thrust. Mm -hmm. So I told the school, I said, that thrust comes out, we can't light it from on, you know, above the cross arches, so we have to have a grid up here. And Dave came in, he gave an estimate, um, which was very reasonable, and a, um, a catwalk up there so you could get ah. up to the lights and, and so forth. And they refused to do it. So we ended up with the chandelier above the thrust part. Now you can't light it except from the side. The side. They have a center line of lights there with a pulley that yes. comes down. You can't set your lights. And Brett <laughs> Thomas used to go in there with his triangulation and that sort of thing. He to set his lights there and then wind and it then, up. And see, check it. Okay, wind it back down again. Oh, I know. Every time I was there, and every time Brian would come in, he would go, I, I, I can't. Uh, this I, <laughs> it was always an issue. Yeah. You know, I mean, this, this is the sort of thing, the, the things that stand in your way. You've told them the right way to do it, uh, and they don't understand that people are going to have to be working with this stuff every day and it needs to be reasonably accessible. But this is the result of the fact that the, the, the college owns the theater. Yes. You know, and they, ha right. they hold the purse strings ultimately. Do you, do you know of anybody else who's in this uh, situation? Are there colleges all over the country that are doing this, that have a professional theater? I don't. 
Um, I mean, Musical I, I Fair know. has Damon, but they don't <clears throat> they don't run the right. theater. Right. I, do, I, I don't know of a similar situation. I, I, but because they owned it, they make the, the budgetary decisions um, based purely on the information that people don't know anything about theater have, right. which is not enough. Right. I mean, I'm sure you give great credit to the fact that for many years this, you were able to pull this off. Uh, you were able to, yeah. to deal with them and, and work with them, when, and when, they deserve credit for when, that. I, no, I, no, when plenty of money is coming in, it, it, it's, it's easy to make up for mistakes. When uh, things, purse strings get very, very tight, tight, it was difficult during the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, when, when there was an abundance of other <coughs> theaters going yeah, on around yeah. here. And we would not going to do four musicals a year, you know. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that, I mean, I'd met so many people, I mean, Lynn Kurzil and, and oh, Jim, Jim Diot. Jim Diot. Jim Diot. And Diot was really helpful when we first, because I directed for him at St. Joe's, mm -hmm. and their musical, and that's where I met Lynn, because she was doing the choreography. And the final meeting I had, was with Lynn and whoever took over from me, mm -hmm. um, and our so-called boss, who knew nothing about theater, mm -hmm. telling me that we were going to be doing uh, at least two musicals and probably three. And I said, no, we're not. You know, that was the last meeting I was ever invited to. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, but that brings me back to to your original vision. What? You didn't want to do two, two or three musicals a year, but what what did you want to do? I wanted to do new plays. Hmm. Well, that was always your vision? Always, always my vision is, is fresh, fresh stuff. And knowing that we can't only do that. But new as in uh, uh, fresh off of Broadway or new as in yes. like, like Neil Raddus does? No. New. No, not, no. Not. no. David, why don't you do local playwrights? If it was good enough to get to New York, mm -hmm. I'd be doing it. Because yes. I can't read, I don't have a reader's, you know. Oh, it's a huge job. And to go through all of this stuff. So the stuff that makes it on Broadway is probably quite good. Uh, the stuff that makes it to other regional theaters is probably quite good. And going through all of the, the stuff that has been vetted because that's all I've got time for. Mm -hmm. And if you go upstairs, you'll see my bookshelves, <laughs> all of which I bought myself. And I used to spend the summers in Cambridge in bows and bows sitting on the floor reading all these news plays because they were all the green ones and the orange ones. And, uh, you know, and then I come back with a suitcase full of books. So new, new plays, but plays that had proven themselves on... Yes. You know, on the West End. And you know the playwrights. Yes. You know, I mean, sure. the Stoppards of this world and mm -hmm. the Sorkins in this country. So you can't live on those. There are not enough of them. Mm -hmm. uh, not enough people writing for the theatre who are great. Those are the sort of plays that I was interested in. I, we did two or three of them. Things. I mean, what was the one where you were upstairs, downstairs, with uh, the gallery? Farnsworth. Farnsworth Invention. Yes. You know, I, I just love that stuff. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it hasn't been done before. No. You know, you and can't, it hasn't been done since. You can't copy anybody. You mm -hmm. know, you just got to make it up. How are we going to get those stairs at the end of uh, yeah. the stage? And so this is exciting, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, Looking back, what are you most proud of? I think I had one good idea that resulted, I think my one good idea 
resulted in a theater community in Buffalo. I think it did. Yeah. If I hadn't been here, I don't know if it would have happened. There were the Radices and the Dudziks and that sort of thing going around at the same yes. sort of time, and the Saul Elkin eventually yes. left teaching. Or, but I don't know whether we would have got the O'Neills in and, and we'd kept the, the, the good actors together for a period of time that established there is a life in theatre. You know, if you're looking, I, I don't look at achievements. I, I, because I'm most proud of playing for England in the 19s. <laughs> I'm most proud of the fact that uh, last week I hit another level in tennis, you know? Yeah. I, those are the things that can be judged. You know, th there is no critic giving an opinion on that. Yeah. But I think the legacy of the Kevin Oakey is exactly that, that you yeah. were the first small professional theater to open. Right. I mean, were you not? But you wonder whether the small professional would have even really happened unless it had been proven, as you said, that there was a market for it. There, and that there, there, was, there was a market for it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, there, there was the ability for the people who have come to town who stayed here to act and that sort of thing and, mm -hmm. and there have been a number of them i think we've attracted people as well as having grown people um well you helped the o'neills stay here i mean you know you you gave chris absolutely plenty of work <laughs> that first <laughs> noises off with him cr crawling through that window i don't think i'll ever forget it <laughs> uh, <laughs> well what do you <laughs> that voice of his right. uh, you know and and then of course vincent uh, the irish classical absolutely. is part of your legacy yeah. whether you want to admit yeah. it or not no i you know i I, uh, yeah, I think it is. They all are, really. I, I think they all came out of that first surge in the 70s, mm -hmm. um, when we were all much younger. <laughs> and so I, I don't look at it. I'm not certainly looking for a leg legacy or anything like that. I, you know, well, you have one. There's nothing it, you can it, do about it, that. It, 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 here's, a tough, here's a tough question. Yeah. So would you, would you go back? Uh, and get as involved as you were? Or do, I couldn't. Or, or, or do I you, couldn't. I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, physically not capable of doing what I used to do. You know, I might need to go to the bathroom in the middle of Act Two. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who knows, you know? Uh, but you, but, but you'd, you'd, you'd do a show or two, wouldn't you? I if it was the right, would. if it was the right uh, vehicle, and and yeah. and there was a pee break in middle of Act Two. Yeah. If, uh, <laughs> if have you ever thought about what else you'd have done if you hadn't done this? Like what road? This is my off-road question. What road yeah. would you have taken if you hadn't done this? Well, going back to going back the, way back. You know, you'd be coaching rugby now. Well. I'd probably be something in sports, yeah. but you had to go abroad, you know, do your stuff around, part of the empire thing, for privileged people. Oh. And we were privileged people. They paid you like crazy. You played cricket, you played rugby, you, you spent your time socializing and playing sports. You yes. know? Um, and I could talk forever, um, because <laughs> I, I, I've missed out three quarters of the stories uh, that led up to decisions. You know, uh, yeah. But I've also forgotten half uh, 
three quarters of the shows that we've done. Well, I wouldn't in a million years ask you, yeah. you know, favorite shows or anything like that, unless one just stuck out of your head. Honestly, there were so many. Yeah, oh, there were just so many and great they, shows. And, and they were so different, such different ones. I think that the one I was most proud of, in a sense, was My Fair Lady, because nobody thought that I could sing. Mm-hmm. And I can't. <laughs> but I could. And I know music. Yes. And so putting that, you know, having, having never trained my voice since it's broken, um, but using it all the time, mm -hmm. you know, eventually it's, it's going to be okay. I'd ask you if there's anything else you want to get off your chest, but I'm afraid you do have something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you'll forgive me if I don't uh, ask you. Uh, you know what we didn't talk about is how it's your fault that I'm even here. <laughs> Which you know, every day I either thank God or curse you. But it's uh, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure. Yes, yes, I understand that I was a bit of a fanboy, and it wasn't the first time, and it won't be the last. But I owe the man a lot. So there you go, the story of David Lamb, the story of the Cavanoki Theater for all of you to hear. And now, here's something else that you should hear. David has given me permission to tell you that a couple of weeks ago, he suffered a heart incident. He suffered a situation where his heart stopped on the tennis court. And he was, as he says it, brought back to life by quick actions at the tennis club with CPR and the use of a defibrillator. He was only out for a very short amount of time, but it was some kind of an electrical problem. His arteries are clear. Still, it happened, and it was scary. As he said, I died and was brought back to life. He's fine. I've seen him. I've talked to him. He looks better than most of us, and he probably will be back to a full schedule very soon. But I thought you might be interested in knowing what's going on. So there aren't any rumors. So that's it. For RLTP's Off-Road, and speaking of RLTP, it's about time I paid a little attention to what's going to be happening there in just a few weeks. Hand to God, the show that, that closed down because of COVID is going to reopen. It's going to reopen the theater at RLTP at 456 Main Street. The Road Less Traveled Productions Theater will reopen with the show that closed it down, Hand to God. And on the next podcast, we will hear from one of the stars, well, the main star of Hand to God, Mr. Dan Ertz. And then, a couple of weeks later, we'll hear from the brilliant playwright of Hand to God, Mr. Rob Askins. And get your tickets for Hand to God. It opens November 4th. This show, even though it was only open for a very short time, already received rave reviews for Dan's performance, the play itself, and just it's just an evening of laughter and drama wrapped up into one incredible play. Hand to God, November 4th at the Road Less Traveled Productions Theater. Don't miss it. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Until then, this is Pete Pomisano for our LTP's Off-Road. Off-Road.